You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, Mark chapter 9 is where we will be anchored, and I encourage you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one of those Bibles in front of you and turn to page 845. And I'm going to actually read our story before I explain where we're going. And what I want you to do is join me in asking questions of the text. For some of you, the Bible might be a regular discipline that you read it on a daily or weekly basis. For others of you, it might be a book that has proverbial cobwebs or dust particles on it because you were familiar with it in the past, but you've been away from it for a while. For others of you, the concept of a Bible might be in a long line of religious books that you're aware of, but have never really opened it in studying it. And what I like to say is that every time I preach on a Sunday, I am first attempting to model to you how to study the Bible. That while this is an ancient text and it was written thousands of years ago, it has incredibly relevant modern application. And so as we read this ancient text, we want to ask questions of it. Why was this account included in the Gospel of Mark? Who are the people that this story is referring to? What is Jesus teaching them? Uh, How is he teaching them? And we want to ask questions of the text, get those questions answered, and then see an incredibly relevant application to our lives. Because after all, Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3, everything that we need for life and godliness is contained in the understanding and application of this book. So as I read this story, I would encourage you, ask questions of the text, and then hopefully we will answer most of them so that you understand and then can apply your understanding. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him. And greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the child of the father cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. 
When Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why, why can we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What an amazing story. Filled with human interest that I hope even in this first reading as a parent you can relate to at an emotional level. But why is this relevant for us today? And I would submit to you that I believe it's because Jesus is moving these people in the crowd, these individuals in his team of disciples and this father to a place where they move beyond existing. You ever been in a season of existing? Maybe you're in there right now. As a parent of teens, I'm finding that friendships can be complicated. I think we get to a point as adults and we're just like, yeah, I've got a few friends and yeah, maybe we get together, maybe we don't. But I've got my career, I've got my family, I've got my hobbies. But man, as a teenager, friends are very important. And maybe as a teenager, you've been putting yourself out there. Maybe you've been checking the boxes. Maybe you've been selfless. Maybe your parents have said, try this, and you've tried this. Maybe they've said, do that, and you've done that. But you just can't seem to find a rhythm with your friends, and you are just existing. Maybe some of you have a situation at work where you, you've tried. You, you've talked to your boss. You've talked to your coworkers. You've sought counsel, and you're at a place where things just don't seem to change, and you are just existing. Maybe with this pandemic, you, you hear the president come out and say, we, we might have some more closures by Christmas, and you're hearing about the supply chain, and you're like, I can't get Tickle Me Elmo. That's dating me, actually. <laughs> but you're starting to think, oh, here we go again, and you've just gotten to a place where you're existing. Others of you might be in a place in your life where you don't even realize you're existing and you've been just filling your, your calendar with activities and travel and, and you know, exotic foods or maybe you've been filling your house with toys and your, your, place, your house is the envy of all your, your, your kids' friends and they want to be at your place. And, and, but before you know it, your, your spouse says, I'm done. Before you know it, your kids have derailed and showing patterns of inappropriate behavior. You're saying, what, what, what's happened? And you realize, I just was existing. And then there's those of you who I'm about to join in your 50s and 60s. And you realize you're actually not going to change the world. You actually can't dream to be a Disney princess and it'll happen. And you start looking back on your life and you realize, man, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to parenting, when it comes to my walk with Christ, I've just been existing. So, so, so how do we move beyond existing? How do we move beyond those seasons of life where we, we just say it is what it is? And that's really where the big idea comes in. You see it in your notes. Active faith is what moves us beyond it is what it is. I'm asking the team to put a quote up on the screen. It is what it is may mean that circumstances may not change. 
Isn't, isn't that ultimately what we're saying? When we say it is what it is, if I'm a Kansas Jayhawk football fan, you say that a lot. <laughs> and you were confronted with the opportunity to hope yesterday, and you just realized it is what it is. It is what it is may mean that circumstances may not change, but our attitude and our response can and it should. That's what I think Jesus is pushing his disciples toward in this account. Let's look, first of all, at the place where we can find help. We find help by focusing on Christ. We find help by focusing on Christ. And I, and I use the title of Jesus as Christ intentionally. Because his name is Jesus. And Matthew one twenty one says, his name is Jesus because he will save his people from his, their sins. That is what the name Jesus means. God saves. But his title is Christ. And so I'm drawing attention to his title because I think a lot of times in our modern context, we say the name Jesus, but often attach our definitions and our expectations to what that salvation looks like. And the title Christ draws us back to Genesis 1-1, that he created the universe. It draws us back to Genesis 3-15, that he will be the one who bruises the serpent's head. It draws us back to the Old Testament, that all of those people and those laws and all of those festivals were shadows pointing to a substance who is Christ, that the disciples rallied around and were commissioned by Christ, that the church exists to make famous the name of Christ, that we are moving toward an eternity where we will dwell with Christ. That's why Christ is the focus of this outline. So we get help by focusing on Christ. Look at verse 14. And when they came to the disciples. So maybe you asked the question when I read this, who are the they? Remember who the they was. Last week we talked about the, the Mount of Transfiguration. So that was Peter, James, and John with Jesus. And remember, Jesus' face and his clothes changed. And, and real Elijah and real Moses, even though dead for generations, were, were present and talking with Jesus. And the disciples were blown away by that. And they're coming down the mountain and they're talking theology that Elijah has come and there will still be suffering. And then he will restore all things. And what does that mean? And Jesus is explaining it to him. And this is awesome. And have you ever had one of those mountaintop spiritual experiences and then been slapped in the face with reality? I mean, maybe that's been camp. Maybe it's been, man, you've read that Devo in the morning with your coffee looking at the sunrise. And then your kids come bounding down the stairs. That's what's happening here. See, we are given those glimpses of that spiritual mountaintop to remind us that that is our eternal destination. But, they, but he also wants us to remember the reality that we are faced with. And so that's the reality. So the four come down to the other nine disciples and they saw a great crowd. And that's, that's not abnormal, is it, in the Gospel of Mark? And there's actually some scribes, some professional theologians arguing with the disciples. And that's not abnormal, and there's a great commotion in the crowd, and that's not abnormal. And the crowd runs to Jesus, and that is not abnormal. So this is the reality of life that these four are coming back to. Maybe you asked the question as I read this. Look at verse 15, that the crowd saw him, and they were greatly amazed. And you're wondering, why, why were they greatly amazed? It's Jesus. 
Isaiah 52 and 53 says that Jesus' form and his appearance was not such that you're like, that's Jesus. Like, he didn't have a white robe with a blue sash, and he was Caucasian with a long, flowing, you know, brown hair and a perfectly manicured beard. It's just Jesus. But it's most likely they were greatly amazed because maybe his face glowed like Moses did when he came down from Sinai. Maybe it's because the bleaching that had taken place with his clothes still was there. But the crowd is greatly amazed, and they are attracted to Jesus. They run to him, and they greet him. And so Jesus asks a question, and he says, what are you arguing about with them? Now, probably he's looking at his disciples with the scribes around and the crowd around, and he's asking this to them, but everybody can hear it. It's an interesting response that we get. Look at verse 17. Someone from the crowd. So the disciples don't answer. The scribes don't answer. Someone from the crowd answers. And now we see what the commotion is about. The man says, teacher, I I brought my son to you. Now I'm going to read this description. And and I want to just say kind of like a warning before a movie or a TV show that the details here, especially if you have friends or family that are given to seizures, can be pretty descriptive. This can be pretty hurtful. But I think Mark wants us to linger in the human interest side of this. In fact, Mark, as opposed to Matthew and Luke, uses double the amount of words to describe this story. He he gives the symptoms three times. He's wanting us to linger in the human interest side of the thing. So look at this. He has a spirit that makes him mute. Which, by the way, just linger here for a moment. That means the only way that the son can communicate with his dad, which, by the way, he's a young child below the age of purity, purity, puberty. Well, actually both. (laughs) (laughs) But the only way the son can communicate with him when he's foaming at the mouth, as we'll read, is through his eyes. Maybe there's eyes of despair, of confusion. Maybe his son doesn't even appear to be there. Maybe there's pain. But the spirit makes his son mute so he can't communicate. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. What we're going to see in the text is that the father has had this experience with his son for years. And what we can see from the text is that they likely tried everything. And what we can see from the text is that nothing helped. And what we can see from the text is that this man had one last hope. And this last hope is that there's a, there's a man in, in Israel who has been healing people, who has been casting out spirits, and, and his name is Jesus. And guess what? Jesus is now in his region in Caesarea Philippi. And so the, the father is starting to build in his excitement and build in his anticipation. So he does what all of us would do. And he brings this poor child to Jesus. He arrives at the team, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. But he also remembers that he's heard stories of these disciples can actually cast out demons. You can flip back and look at Mark chapter 6, verses 7 and 13, that Jesus had given them power to cast out demons, and they had done so, and they were successful, and they brought back an account to Jesus that, look at all that we were able to do. And so the the father now shifts and says, okay, I wanted to see Jesus, but but I'll take him to his disciples. And so he does that, and look at verse 18. 
So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And so there's great hope. There's great expectation that his years of existing are going to now change. And they were not able to. The word not is emphatic in the Greek. There's a word that's not that's like not but maybe later. But this word not means no way, no how, not possible. The disciples tried everything. They tried the words that they used before. They tried the touching that they did before. They addressed the spirit like they did back in Mark chapter 6 and nothing changed. I don't know about you, but if I would have been this dad at this point, I'd have just thrown up my hands. I would have just uttered, it is what it is, and returned to my house in despair. But Jesus is on the scene, isn't he? And so how is Jesus, gracious Jesus, merciful Jesus, going to respond? Look at verse 19, and he answered them, oh, faithless generation. Isn't that interesting? He, he's speaking to an individual, but he says to the crowd, oh, faithless generation, which includes the Father, it includes the disciples, it includes the scribes, and it includes the greater crowd. Look at what else he says. How, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? How long am I to put up with you? That doesn't sound like the Jesus from the felt boards, does it? It doesn't sound like the compassionate, gentle Jesus that just anybody that he sees, you're healed, you're healed. Jesus looks beyond the request. He looks beyond the physical, and he's focused on faith. Friends, that's always what Jesus is focused on. Whatever you are going through in your life right now has as its end goal to grow your faith. Jesus looks out and he's realizing that, look, all of this generation, all of this crowd, all of these scribes, even his disciples, although they're growing, do not get who he actually is. And this is where the focus comes in. Look at the end of verse 19, beloved. If you would, would you circle this? Would you underline it? Put this on your cards to memorize it. Let us live by this. Bring him to me. But who's the me? You know, would you turn over to Colossians chapter 1 for me, please? Colossians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 15, he, Jesus Christ, the very one who asks the Father, bring the child to me. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. The the spiritual realm, that, that world that most of us don't really think about on a daily basis. The demons, the angels, all of the spiritual warfare that is actually going on right now, even in this room. He created that. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in all things he holds them together. Friends, as I'm reading that, does that do something in your heart? 
Does that do something in your mind? Does it take things to a place where whatever reality, whatever circumstances you're existing in, and and it just moves that into the background? Listen, friend, if you're struggling with porn, one of the greatest solutions is to follow this example and live out what the hymn writer says. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Friend, as we turn back to Mark chapter 9, if you're in a place of existing, this passage reminds us that one of the first and most important places to start is find help by focusing on Christ. Number two, find help by recalibrating to Christ. Find hope by recalibrating to Christ. And and Mark leaves us in reality here. He's just given us a theological glimpse into who Christ is. But he leaves us in the reality, verse 20, and they brought the child. Do, Do you see that in the text? And as you were asking questions, do you see the difference between Jesus talking to one man, talking about a child, a father and a child, then he's talking about them, and then he says, bring the child to me, and it says in verse 20, they brought the boy. That means that multiple adult humans had to bring this less than puberty old child. Why was it? Because I bet you the Spirit didn't want to come to Jesus. And in fact, it says in verse 20, when the spirit saw him, immediately he convulsed the boy. And here's the account again. Here are the details. And it is vivid, and it is reminding us of the reality. It is reminding us of the symptoms that we're, this child was going through. It's epileptic-type symptoms, but what this means is that the demon was creating such a, a, a movement in this child that it manifested itself with epileptic-type symptoms. This is how serious the situation is, and he starts foaming in the mouth. And the verbs in the original language remind us of the type of action. This is not just a one-time event. The child is rolling around. That's what it, it means in the original language. It's roll, he's rolling around, and there's dust all over him. And then Jesus, looking at all of this happening, and the father like, oh, no, it's happening again. Jesus asks a question that seems out of touch, doesn't it? Look at verse 21. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? Now, now why does Jesus ask this question? Is it because he's out of touch? And the answer is absolutely not. He asks this question to both convey compassion as well as for every subsequent generation to be able to know this is not something that just happened the night before. Because the father answers from childhood. And then this dear dad gives additional detail that gives us a glimpse into what the physical appearance of this child is. Look at what it says in verse 21. This was from childhood, 22, and it has often cast him into fire and water to destroy him. Friend, listen, let me just remind you. Would you look up here for a moment? The efforts of the evil one in your life is always to destroy your faith. It's always to destroy you, and he will put the most glittering gold in front of you. Careers, another person for a relationship, but they're unsaved. No, no, but they're beautiful. 
If I could just have this, if I could just have that. Solomon talks about it from Ecclesiastes. Nothing that this horizontal world can offer you will vertically satisfy you. All that glitters is not gold. And so we see that in here, that the, the evil one is attempting to destroy this child, to destroy the father's faith. And so this is a physical reminder that this child likely was a majorly, horrifically scarred burn victim. And the dad would constantly look at his eyes and say, there, there's my son, but the rest of it I don't recognize. And the father asks a question that we can understand, can't we? But if you can do anything, God, I'm, I'm at the end of my rope. I've tried everything. You are my last hope. If you can do anything, and then he gives a command in verse 22, have compassion on us and help us. We get that, don't we? The father is desperate. I think it's interesting where this father is because it's often where we are. Have you ever had a gut punch moment? You know, maybe somebody that you have been closest to betrays you. Maybe you lose your job. Maybe the spouse delivers the news you never thought you would hear, whatever it is. Have you ever had a gut punch moment? Well, what do we typically do in those moments? What we typically do is we self-preserve, don't we? we? We try to fix it. We try to poke holes in the argument, and we, we scramble, and then all of a sudden it dawns on us, oh, yeah, Jesus. Remember that guy? He raised people from the dead. He does miracles. He, he listens to my prayers. He created the universe. Jesus, come, come on over here. Yeah, you, you come here. Yeah, come here, come here. No, really, come here. Okay, now get in our huddle because here's the play I want you to run. I need you to do this. And then I need you to do that. And after you've done that, then would you go over there and do this? And we invite him in in that moment to run our play. When the reality is he wants us to remind ourselves that he's the quarterback. He is the one who drives all that is going on in our lives. Look at his answer in verse 23. Jesus said to him, if you can. <laughs> Wouldn't you have liked to have been there to hear how, how did he word that? The God who knit that child in his mother's womb. The God who spoke the universe into existence. The, the God who had just been transfigured. If you can Let's talk about this, if you can. And what he says here is something that has been so misunderstood through the years. Verse 23, all things are possible for the one who believes. Let me share with you ways that this has been misunderstood. Some people have thought that if you have enough faith, if you just reach that point on the thermometer, then God has to respond. That's not what this is saying. Others have said, you know, if you just have enough faith, it's like a superpower. Ding! Now you are able to do it. 
Other people have said that if you just have enough faith, nothing bad will ever happen to you in your life. And that's not what this passage is saying. In fact, the the, the original word actually conveys what Jesus is saying. The word translated believes is faith. All things are possible for the one who has faith. Let me ask the team to put a quote up on the screen to further develop this. This type of faith that Jesus is talking about is a belief that God can do anything. So we trust in him with absolute faith that if he does or doesn't, he will act in a way that most glorifies him and is best for us. Beloved, to have the faith that makes all things possible is a faith that believes that if God does it or if he doesn't do it, he will bring glory to himself and this will be what is best for us and this is what is possible. What is possible is that no matter what his answer is, won't change us. That's what's possible. It isn't that a miracle is now possible. It's that our faith will be secure and our joy will be full no matter what his answer will be. And beloved, listen, that will make sure that we are not derailed. And that's a superpower. Imagine, if you will, that no matter what God's answer is to your prayer, your faith will not be removed. That's a superpower. If no matter what happens for this father, if Jesus says, I hear your request, but I'm not going to do it, continue to have faith, and he says, okay, I will, I'll glorify you in all of this, that's a superpower. And what we must recalibrate toward is remembering who God is and that all things are possible. He can do all things, but our faith in him is what matters. That's what this is about. When this is our resolve, beloved, it has an amazing effect on our emotions and our desires for answers. You want to have help moving beyond your time of existence? Recalibrate to Christ. Number three, find help by surrendering to Christ. Find help by surrendering to Christ. We See in verse 24, again, this dad, he's listening to this. He's got his son convulsing here. He, he's in the presence of the one who is engaging with him, who all of the crowds have told him he can do it. And the father says, immediately the father of the child cries out and says, I believe, I have faith, but look at the next phrase, help my unbelief. Friends, the words in the Bible matter. And I talk a lot about the grammar and what words mean, but there's something rich here. You know, it takes work to discover the treasures of God's word. And if all your interaction is with God's word is a 45-minute opportunity each week for somebody who studied it during the work week to tell you what's going on, it will be beneficial, but you won't get the treasures if you dig yourself. And look at the word here. The man had just begged Jesus through a command to say, help us, but now he says, help me. In the previous verse, he says, help us in our horizontal situation, and now he realizes what's most important is the vertical, and he says, help my faith.
The first, here's a quote up on the screen, the first and primary objective is for our faith to grow and to influence how we process and respond to life circumstances. Listen, if you are in a place right now where you're just existing, where you're feeling pressure, where you're being persecuted, God has that in your life to first and foremost grow your faith. And as you do, that recalibrates the lenses through which you see those circumstances. And then you will be able to respond in an impossible way. And that is bring glory to God, rejoice in him, worship him, even if your circumstances don't change. My brother and I, growing up, I don't talk about him a lot, but I consider him one of my best friends. You know, he's the kind of guy that's taller than me and stronger than me, but because I beat him up a lot growing up, he's still respectful of me. And so back when we were kids, he was a tease. He still is a tease. I hope he watches this. And we would play this little game. And and I don't know if we said uncle, but remember Christmas story? Uncle Scott Farkas. (laughs) Uncle! We would play that game. And I would get done with my brother's teasing, and I would just grab him with my, you know, big muscles. And I would just squeeze him like an anaconda squeeze. <laughs> Until he told me something that I wanted to hear about myself. You know, you're, you're, you're smarter, you're better looking. Never said that part. But I would get him to a place where his life was almost sucked out of him. And he would declare to me, you're the best, I'm the worst. But then that little punk would go running off. I had my fingers crossed. (laughs) I was just joking. That's often what we do with our surrender to Christ, don't we? Our surrender to Christ, our commitment to him is like that lawn equipment that we pull out during the right season. Jesus isn't interested in that kind of a surrender. He's not interested in the fingers crossed. He's wanting to make sure that our faith is real, and that's what's going on here. So Jesus hears the Father ask for his faith to grow. But then look at verse 25. He sees a crowd is coming to run together. So there's already a crowd, but even more people are coming, and Jesus is focusing on faith here. And so rather than waiting for the crowd to come, rather than amassing a crowd and saying, okay, this is going to be good, let's just wait. Look at what it says in verse 25. When he sees the crowd, he rebukes the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again, which likely means that the spirit would come on and then would come off. Which, by the way, imagine what that dad thought when he heard that. Like it's one thing for the spirit to come out, but, but I'm sure the dad might have thought, you know what, but what happens tomorrow night? What happens when you're not here, Jesus? And Jesus says, no, 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 spirit, you can't come back. You're gone. And so the spirit does his final cry and convulsing. And then look what, isn't it interesting how Jesus rarely works in a way that fits perfectly into our expectations? I mean, wouldn't you want your child to just be like, I'm a real boy. It says in verse 26, the boy was like a corpse. So that the crowd around him said he's dead. 
Now, we don't know if he was really dead. Some commentators believe that he really was, but it was enough of a bodily expression that the people said, he's dead. But Jesus, verse 27, took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. You know, when Jesus does miracles, he's always interested in the faith response. When Jesus teaches, he's always interested in the faith response. In fact, you can write down Mark 6, 5 through 6. Jesus, in his hometown, it says, could not do many miracles. Why? Because they did not have faith. In fact, their lack of faith confounded him. Jesus is always interested in the circumstances of our life, moving us toward a deeper faith in him. That's always what the objective is. So what does that actually look like? What does surrender mean? It means that in your life, Christ overrules emotions. It means that Christ overrules outcomes. It does not mean that we don't seek solutions. It does not mean that we we pray for our child who is sick. It means that whatever God's response is, if he heals or if he doesn't heal, we are resolved in our faith and glory that we want Christ to achieve. That's what surrender looks like. No fingers crossed. No, I didn't mean it. Full surrender. And beloved, if that's the place that you can arrive in the middle of your existing, you will move past existing. Number four, find help by active faith in Christ. Find help by active faith in Christ. I got to tell you, I, I, ugh, Mark, why? I mean, up to this point, it's been a, we can relate to the story, can't we? When we get it, there's a dad, there's this poor little boy, and Jesus heals him, and this is a great story. Can't we just pray right now and go out and watch the Chiefs game? Well, there's two more verses. When Jesus entered the house, his disciples privately asked him. Here's a quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. Jesus is avoiding popularity that's centered on what he does instead of who he is. Friend, are you here for what Jesus can do for you? When you pray, is that the Jesus that you're praying to, a Jesus that can do something for you? When you read the Bible and you're even applying what I ask you to do when you read the Bible, and that is look for how it points you to Christ. Is the, is the Jesus that you're seeing that text point you to, the, the Jesus that you're attracted to for what he does, or is it who he is? Because if it's only and foremost who he is, then what he does for you will be okay no matter what it is. And so the disciples ask him a question. Ah, Jesus. You gave us power, and we've had success. What gives with this one? And Jesus gives an answer that I have to tell you is really tough to understand. Verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, if you're reading the ESV, some of your versions might have a little footnote there. If you're reading the New King James or the King James, you might see that there are some versions and manuscripts that have and fasting. It's just to give you an idea, back in the 1600s when 
the British were translating the King James Version. They used the manuscripts that they had to be able to translate it into the King's English. And so the manuscripts that they used actually had and fasting. But as time has gone on in the 400 years since then, we have had more manuscripts discovered. We've had more documents and we realize that most likely fasting was not part of the original. But the point that Jesus is making actually isn't about fasting. And it's really not ultimately about prayer. But speaking of, prayer is something that has been front and center in my life as a Christian. I grew up in the church. I was surrounded by, we had some men that could just flat out pray. And what I mean by that is, man, they use big words. And then there was guys like my grandpa, I love him, loved. He's with the Lord. But he would pray before donuts in the morning and he would say, our heavenly father, Thou hast blessed us with thy bounty. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't even know what those words mean. And so as I grew up, when it was prayer time, I was like, God, please don't let them ask me to pray. And I know some of you might have that approach to prayer because we have prayer and worship nights and we get in little groups and we pray and you're like, no, I can see you just start to tense up. But as I developed in my understanding of prayer, I realized that I need to pray too. So I would be in the church and somebody would come up to me and say, hey, can you pray for me? I've got this going on. Yes, I will, but I'll pray on my own. And what would inevitably happen is I would forget about it. Life would get busy. But but then we started a church that has a pillar of prayer where we like to say here at Ascend that we don't just talk about praying, we actually do it. And so now it's like, that's, that's a part of us. And, but what I want you to see is what prayer actually is, beloved. Prayer isn't words. It isn't timing. It isn't posture. Here's a definition. Prayer is more than just communicating with God. It is acknowledging one's dependence on him for all our needs. That's this act of faith that Jesus is talking about. It must be active. And so there's a sense that we get from this. that The disciples were resting on past experiences, power that they had had in the past. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, you weren't depending on the power of God. You weren't depending upon me. You didn't have an act of faith. Beloved, when we have a mindset and a disposition that we are dependent upon God for the very breath that you're taking right now, that changes everything. When you wake up in the morning and you're laying next to your wife and you're thinking about marriage and you realize, I can't do this, God, without your help. I can't parent my kids. I can't live in my singleness. I can't minister to the kids of Ascend. I can't minister at the cafe and bring glory to Christ on my own. I'm dependent. I'm dependent upon you, God. Grow me. And you look at that connected card and you see the check boxes and the opportunities that you have to serve and you're like, okay, God, this makes me nervous, but I'm dependent upon you. It changes everything. And when that is our mindset, when that is what drives us, then we have an active faith. It's an active faith that puts disciplines in our life. It motivates us in our activities. It consumes our thoughts and overflows in our speech because it is an active dependence on Christ. Christ. 